May the grace of our Lord Jesus grace our assembly tonight. The longer I'm here, the more connections I discover. Uh, I just discovered tonight that uh, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, was Tony's first grade teacher. And uh, it's just amazing how many people here have roots in Hanover, Pennsylvania, where my wife's brother still lives. And so, <clears throat> let's uh, stay together. The essence of the Anabaptist vision that you see up there, all together. The essence of the Anabaptist vision. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures, is the ultimate authority. Since he is, I order my life in discipleship to him. When others do the same, I enter into a body relationship with them called the church. The church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally demonstrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. And once again, the essence of the Anabaptist vision. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Scriptures, is the ultimate authority. Since he is, I order my life in discipleship to him. When others do the same, I enter into a body relationship with them called the church. The church, unique from its host culture, supernaturally demonstrates the love of Christ as it cooperates with him to build the kingdom of God in the world today. Now open your Bibles again to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> And I would like to begin reading at the same verse I read last night, 4 verse 13, and this time I'll read further. <clears throat> this is uh, New King James, Ephesians 4, 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, think about the diagram that we looked at last night, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which is, was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And we'll stop there tonight. I, so tonight I would like to continue developing the thought that I started last night, and I'm not going to exegete this passage, but I hope you can see some connections as we go along, especially this thought in verse 23 about being renewed in the spirit of our mind. 
I want to say up front that the things I'm going to be saying that I said last night, tonight, and some of the other nights, this is strange stuff to people's minds are not renewed. It's, it takes a renewed mind to be able to comprehend this stuff. But it's wonderful. Once a person's mind has been renewed and you see this, it's like, why would you give this up? This is amazing. This is beyond where we ever even considered valuable. The stuff that I used to hate, I love. I wouldn't give it up for anything. But you have to have an enlightened mind and a renewed heart to be able to understand this stuff. And it's no wonder that poor people out there can't understand it. It's because their minds have not been renewed. Okay, so more could be said that, on that. But I would like to say something else here from last night. <clears throat> Remember last night I showed you that uh, I said that people who are two stages ahead are threats to the people who are two or more stages below. And so I need to clarify that. What I mean by that, for example, a person who is in stage one feels threatened by a person who's in stage three or stage four. And by threatened, I mean they feel disconcerted, they feel uncomfortable, they can't quite get a hold of and understand what's going on by the people who are ahead of them. The people up here are not threatened at all by the people down here. They're wishing, the people who are getting on with things, they're wishing others would cooperate and get along with us because the sooner we get up here, the better. But like I said, we all have to go through these stages. Nobody gets there without going through this, from what I understand. Okay, the second thing I wanted to clarify from last night, after thinking about it some more, I talked to you last night about people who, in many Protestant churches who go to church and they understand that many of their fellow church people are out of fellowship with God. And that was 50 to 70% of out of fellowship, but, quote, praise God, they're still saved. That's a foreign idea to the New Testament. It, comes, it grows right out of Reformed theology. Okay, the third thing I wanted to say, uh, I said something to you about some master copies of uh, some overheads that I have. I'll share anything you want. But uh, there are, are several of them, and somebody got some last night. So what I think we're going to do is I'll try to put some master copies on the front benches up here. So uh, if you can take your pencil and put a stroke down here at the, at the bottom... You know, down here, just put a stroke, and I'll, we'll just count up the strokes, and uh, I'll just let you folks make as many copies as you want. Okay? If you just mark how many copies you want, I'll try to put out what I have. If you don't want any, that's fine. You just keep the free copy. But that way you can get as many as you want. All right, any questions on any of those clarifications to start with? All right. <clears throat> I did order these uh, Anabaptist Vision booklets. And I was thinking about ordering some other things, but where I ordered these, said they can't get them here in time for us to make good use of them. But uh, uh, I still have to be around here for a board meeting for Anabaptist Perspectives by Monday. And by Monday, the things should be here for sure. And so 
I, we do, you raise your hands, and I did not mark your names down, but uh, I ordered 20 of these, and I'll just, if they don't get here, uh, so that I can distribute them, I'll let Tony and Verlin distribute them and take care of them that way. But they are coming. And I think you're wise, you're smart, if you get one of these, because it helps you understand who you are and where you came from. Okay. <clears throat> so much of what I have to say grows out of what I shared with you last night. And so I'd like to pick up where I left off last night and say a few more things and go to some other places. Okay, so this is foundational, and this is only this thick, and so somebody by the name of Stephen Dintemann wrote uh, an article called The Spiritual Poverty of the Anabaptist Vision, and I need to share this with you. This little Anabaptist vision assumes two things. First of all, it assumes the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the inner transformation of a person. Everything that's said here rests on that foundation. Okay? So this is not just like a complete guide. This is like an application of this, that the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ. You'll notice that the very first statement is Jesus Christ through the Holy Scriptures is the ultimate authority. Okay? The second assumption is discipleship, which is the second point, I order my life in discipleship to him, is only meaningful and possible because it's an answer to who God is, the creator of us all, and what he's doing in the world. Okay, so sometimes we need to step back and look at the bigger picture. And Jesus, when he came, and John the Baptist said the same thing, when John the Baptist got here, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And when Jesus came, he said the same thing. Repent, change your mind. We got to have a new focus because the kingdom of God is here. And when Jesus was there, everything changed. It's a new way of looking at the world. It's a new way of thinking about living and so on. Well, this is what God is doing in the world. He is creating a kingdom. Jesus Christ is a real king. He has a kingdom, and part of that kingdom is located right here in uh, Athens, Tennessee. This is the local expression of that kingdom. It's like anybody around who wants to see what the kingdom of Christ is like, go down to that church. They're demonstrating how people in the kingdom live under the king. There's a culture. There is a counterculture here that illustrates what happens whenever a mind gets renewed when a heart gets transformed, when we think according to the way Christ thinks and do things the way he does, it's a different way of living. And so you folks are a colony of heaven that God has planted here. And there are colonies of heaven other places, but you're the local colony here. You are Christ's showcase in this community. I'm not saying you're the only showcase, but if you are... Uh, a, a church, a living church of Jesus Christ, you are his showcase, period. And so to me, when I think about that, that motivates me to be the very best model that I could be. And I think it does the same for you. Why would we want to give an inferior picture of the kingdom of Christ for anybody who's looking in? Now, does that mean we're perfect? 
Absolutely not. But that's one of the wonderful things about the kingdom of God. We don't pretend to be what we're not. We just live who we are. But we have a high standard. And if, uh, if I don't step, live up to my standard, Tony needs to remind me. Step up, Chester. Got a little problem here. Step up. He invites me to do better. And uh, we, we, we forgive each other when we do make mistakes. And there's a lot that could be said there. But discipleship is only meaningful and possible because it's an answer to who God is. He created us perfect and we fell and he's trying to restore us to what God actually made human beings to be. And that's what the colonies of heaven are. Redemption communities, models of what God can remake. He is doing that in the world. He's doing that here in this little church. Okay, so... If we neglect these two, here are some consequences of what happens. If we just focus on the three all by themselves, it gives us little insight into human behavior. And I'm trying to, with this other diagram right here, help us understand human behavior, okay? Uh, all, there's nothing new under the sun. All of us basically have the same issues, and we have our own stories and how we work out this, these issues and so on. And so I guess this is a basic statement saying you know, this is only part of the story. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, we were left an inadequate awareness of the liberating work of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, again... Everything couldn't be put here. But what I'm sharing with you here is that I'm trying to do number two. The liberate, I'm trying to show you that whenever we live up into stage four, we experience the liberating work of God through the death and the resurrection of Christ. This is stuff that's real, folks. This is not just imagine or positive thinking. This is real power. Working in human experience. That's what's so wonderful about it. This is not a pep rally. This is just explaining how it works. And uh, we are here to encourage each other to allow the Holy Spirit to move us along from stage one onto stage two, from stage two into stage three, and to work through the issues we need to work through in stage three so we can get on to stage four and do God's work in the world. This is where normal people operate in the kingdom of God, stage four. Unfortunately, I think I said this last night, I am embarrassed about this. I don't know what to say about this, but... Through the years, after 500 years, there are some Anabaptists who do not want anybody to move beyond stage two. And that's so bad. It denies the gospel. And I'm here to encourage this colony of heaven, don't you dare stop at stage two. You should encourage your young people to work through especially all the questions. You are to help them be a safe place to ask their questions and to give them good answers to their questions, and to show how, and we'll talk more about this tonight, how you get this empowerment to go into stage four. This is miracle stuff. This is, 
This is deep and rich and powerful stuff. And it's scary. And young people sometimes need some help to know how to navigate all this. But that's what we're here for. Okay, and number three, we have been impoverished in our sense of the spiritual presence and the power of the living Christ. All that is basically saying is that this, again, has not said everything, and it's a, it's a statement of what happens here in stage four on the maturity level. We have been impoverished in our sense of the spiritual presence and power of the living Christ. And once again, I'm embarrassed about this, but I'm going to tell you the Dortry Confession that was written in 1632 has 18 articles. And you might have studied the 18 articles, and that's good if you did. But there was something missing. After the Amish separation happened in the 17, around 1700, the, 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 the Anabaptists who did not go with the Amish side of things created a new confession. They took the 18 articles and they took some things out that were in the original and they added some things in. And most importantly, they added a whole article on the Holy Spirit. If you look at your Dortry Confession, it has no article on the Holy Spirit. Now, I have no idea. I do not know why we did not pursue our people did not pursue the 19 articles. I didn't even know about them until I did some research. And I'm thinking, I don't know why. We dropped something that we improved. That's a, just a question mark, an irony of history, I guess. We'll just have to leave that. But it's the job of us older people to help deal with weakness. You know, you know, as well as I do, that everything decays. Clothes wear out, we need to repaint, things get rusty. There's all this decay that's going on in the world. And if we don't address the decay, if we don't repaint, if we don't mend the clothes, if we don't put oil on the machinery, it will wear out. But if we maintain properly, then we retain. And I'm just embarrassed again. I, I, don't, I can't explain this. Yes, I can explain it. And I don't know if I'll get this. I, I, might, I hope I say this tomorrow night. If I forget, I will say it right now. But we, when we came across the water, there was both a push out of Europe because of all the persecution that was going on over there, but there was also a pool. Penn's Woods became an economic opportunity for us. And when we came here, we went for the economic opportunity, and we did not maintain our own story. We got so busy chopping trees down and building houses and doing farms that we lost a lot of our story, and we went into what I call the dark ages. And I'm embarrassed, but it's an illustration of what happens when people don't maintain. And then by the, it's just like, evidently God saw enough good in us that he sent a person among our people by the name of John F. Funk who helped us out. I don't know if I would be standing here today if it wouldn't be for John F. Funk and his work. So I thank God for people like John F. Funk. 
Well, <sighs> the blood, sweat, and tears that it took to get some of these basic principles at the beginning, once they're lost, it's very difficult to regain those. Okay, so I will say that beginning, we'll say, in the late 1800s, we began to gain some things. But then by 1900, something new came in to distract us. It was called religious liberalism. And we were not prepared for that. And some of us went left to go into the liberal side of things. And some of us went right. And to, to deal with fundamentalism here, we picked up a Protestant method of dealing with this called fundamentalism as we're trying to deal with this. And fundamentalism is not anabaptism. It's like we saw something strange going on that we borrowed a faulty system to deal with our problem. And I'm here to say tonight, there was one brother, Harold Bender and some of his friends at Goshen, who saw what the real issue and answer was. But most of us went this way. Only a few took the center. And we have not recovered from most of that to this day. And we're still suffering. And that's part of my project here, to help us understand that it would have been better if we would have all paid attention to our own story. We forgot our heritage. We forgot what the scriptures had to say to us. And we tried something else, and we're still trying to re recover from that. And so the real issue that we're facing is this question, who is Jesus Christ? Okay, so there are several answers. Was he a historical figure? Yes, but he was much more than a historical figure. Was he a philosopher teacher? Yes, but he's much more than a philosopher and a teacher. Did he give us a creed? Yes, he gave us a Sermon on the Mount. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. That's where our basic laws are from. And by the way, this is just for a, a, a comparison. When Martin Luther started the Reformation, his concept of the gospel was focused in Romans. The gospel, what he understood, was best explained in the book of Romans. Well, Romans is a part of the scriptures, but the Anabaptists said, sorry, Martin. The gospel is best portrayed in the gospels, all centered on Jesus Christ. It's not a theology. Our faith is invested in a person, and that person spoke the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of very important supernatural standards, and most of our Protestant friends said they're impossible. Can't live up to them. Some of them say, well, that's off in the future sometime, in another millennium. But our people, and I think that's right on what the New Testament says, if Jesus says it, 
It's true. We're going to do it. We're not going to explain it away. What if Jesus means every word he says? I think that's what he meant. I think he said what he meant. And I've thought, okay, if he said that, well, then it's my job to believe it and do it. And we differ from our Protestant friends, little Matlin, right there. Okay, so it's more than a credo component. Did Jesus give us a good ethical example? Of course he did. But he was more than an example of how you're supposed to do it. He actually gives us strength to do it. He calls us his brothers and his sisters. And so I'm picking on you. You're out in front here, Tony. Jesus Christ is incarnate in that man. When you look at Tony Fari, you see Jesus. And see that lady sitting beside him? You see Jesus? Right there she is. What's your first name? Levon. There's what If you want to know what Jesus Christ is like, he's incarnate in those people. And people are in stage four. Christ is incarnate there. That's powerful stuff. And so we can't excuse ourselves and our weakness and say, oh, yeah, I'm failing all the time. and Don't look at me. Uh-uh. Apostle Paul says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. That's, that's our job in the colony of heaven. That's your job right here in this church to provide examples for each other to imitate. Okay, was Jesus a compassionate healer? Well, he certainly was, but he was more than a compassionate healer. He was a healer. I wasn't planning to do this right now. Maybe I should. <clears throat> I'm, there's so much to be said here, I might do more about this later. So I won't do everything right now. But whenever we were created, we were created whole, like that. Wholeness. See that? Wholeness. Oneness. Okay? So whenever Adam and Eve sinned, this was broken. This was cut in half, as you can see. Well... You see, man was separated. I'm sorry, God was separated from man, and it's broke. This is called dualism. But the whole gospel is about how this can be healed. And as long as you can see, you can still see that's not totally healed. You can still see that crack there. Okay, as long as we're in this flesh, we are never totally healed. But that's what sanctification is all about, is bringing these two back together so the healing begins and so that we are finally made whole. This is not a dream, brothers and sisters. It's not a dream. This is the object of the gospel, that we can be made whole, healed. Jesus is not just a Savior and Lord. He is our Savior, and He is our Lord because He has healed us. And He is present now in our lives. He is present at this moment in this building at this time, at 7.42 this evening. He is present here. He is a living being 
who is here. He cares more about what I'm saying than I even send, say my, that I care about myself. I am obligated to say and speak for him. I am not free to say things of my own. It really doesn't matter what I say. Yes, it does matter what I say. I am no authority. The only authority I have is if I say his words. And where I don't say his words, then you, as incarnate Christ, you need to come and correct that. Because he depends upon human beings representing him accurately. Because he is dwelling in the saints. And he will live where he is invited. He will live where he is Lord. He will live in the colony of heaven and express himself in clarity according to the clarity that he has given in lives here. This is powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus Christ is the truest, most attractive, most useful, most humble, purest person of his time that was back then, and yet he was rejected, despised, and killed by those who were blighted by their own agenda. And brothers and sisters, we, his followers, cannot expect anything different. This stuff that I'm telling you is so powerful, and it is so threatening to people who are dualists and hypocrites. I've, I'm only 67. And I've discovered in life, when you start talking about dualism and holiness right here, oh, some people don't like that. And you expose hypocrisy, it's like, The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day could only stand him for three and a half years. They had to get rid of him. There are so many people who are hidden by hypocrisy, hiding behind their pretenses, that they found safety there. And if you disturb that by insisting on holiness, they feel so threatened, they got to get rid of you. So, brothers and sisters, don't feel alarmed if people push back and say all kinds of things. Make fusses. I've learned. The scripture says in Ephesians also, he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's our job. It's not just preachers' jobs. When we find darkness in our own lives first, we are to allow the light to shine on it to expose it. Okay, so the first thing that happens whenever you shine light in the darkness, it begins to make noise and it squirms. Okay, we don't like being convicted, but we are wise if we submit to that and cooperate because God is just actually moving us up in our growth. But I've also found out that if you shine the darkness in some people's lives, whoa, you're asking for trouble. It will squirm and it will make noise. That's really beside the point. That's what Jesus did in his day. And this is our commission in the world. Now, we don't go around and hunt darkness, but where we are brought face to face with darkness, we need to put the light on it and hold it there, even if it makes noise and it squirms. That's our job. As far as humans are concerned, ultimately, 
the success of kingdom work hinges on the workers' integrity to Christ's governing principles and on their ability to apply those principles in any situation using their own moral compass. There's an awful lot said there. But brothers and sisters, this is our job. In the colony of heaven, this is our job. And that's why integrity is so basic and important. This is no problem with Christ, who's always consistent with his own principles. We get scared sometimes, especially when we face the darkness. And we're here to encourage each other to be faithful to our basic integrity that he calls us to. And here's the paper that I wanted to share with you last night. So I'll go over it with you right now. The Golden Circle of Christianity. My original is uh, in color, and I looked all over, and I don't know what happened to my original. So this is a copy. But look at the very beginning, at the very middle here. We always start with why. The very center of the Golden Circle of Christianity. We love Jesus and desire to live in intimacy and oneness with him. That's where we start. Okay, how does this work out then? We see Christianity as a relationship, which means in everything we do, we keep the person of Jesus as our focus. We follow him in all things and draw as close to him as possible. Okay, so what does that turn out then? Well, here's some illustrations of the what. We do not lay up earthly treasures. We share with the poor. We make peace and forgive. We don't lie. We seek to be humble. We actively seek the lost. We do not seek earthly power. We love our enemies. We speak to Jesus often. We overcome temptation and sin. The fiber of who we are is love. We've been born again and baptized. And there's a whole bunch more things we could put on there. The whole point is we radically obey Jesus' commandments. No spin, no complicated interpretation, no excuses. With passion, we live out his kingdom vision while dwelling in oneness with the king. Okay, people, brothers and sisters, are not motivated by the outer circle here. If there's anything, they're threatened by that. They are motivated by the why. As I said last night, they stopped killing people outside the castle because they could see the power of Christ present. And they ask, where do you get something like that? I want that. So we always start with why. Well, the why right here is all about him. So we start with him. And basic New Testament teaching, Anabaptist principles are all focused on Christ. It's all about him. And we are his disciples. And we have the privilege of working for him in his kingdom in the world today. I understand. I was visiting with Jason tonight, and uh, he says that he had some experience with Frank Reed. And so the next things I'm going to share are from Frank Reed. How many of you, how many of you sat under Frank Reed's teaching already? I want to see your hands. Okay, so he's a man of integrity. He's a man that believes this stuff. He's a man that practices this stuff, as you well know. Okay, so he shared with this with me, and I think it's helpful. So I'm going to share it with you. So whenever we come to the very beginning here in our, we, we're starting down here on this, yeah, 
starting down here. To get started with this, what I'm going to show you next is another way to consider this. Okay, so with this, I don't want to keep moving this all the time if I could do that. Yeah, okay. Okay, so here we are, conviction of sin. And uh, we yield to Christ. By the way, this number one, I have three of them here. This number one is my story. I don't know your stories, but I, when I came to Christ, only, all I wanted was a ticket to heaven, that's all. I wanted to escape hell. I had no interest in following Christ. I hated instruction class. When I got baptized, I decided, you know, I better, I better shape up here. I can't. This is not right. But anyway, as I just illustrated, I had no commitment to Christ until later. Do any of you know who Ivan Steinhauer is? Does that ring a bell to any of you? Ivan Steinhauer. Some places I give this, uh, people do recognize that name. Well, Ivan Steinhauer was Franconia from, from Franconia, Pennsylvania, and when he preached, it was, I don't know of anybody like him. One of the things he would do, his eyes would open up real wide, and he would look into your soul. And uh, I, this is where I met Christ. I remember that very well. And that's where I decided that I'm going to give my life to Christ. It wasn't back here. Okay, so you'll notice we come to this. Let me show you something. The Apostle Paul, or the Holy Spirit, had Romans 7 put into the Scriptures for a particular reason. And I think the reason is right here. Once we meet Christ, we come into stage 2. And we say, okay, I got to do it. And we try it. And you cannot, you cannot do this on your own. It's like, this is Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And God just works with us and is patient with us. And it was very, very scary for me to give up and to drop into the arms of Christ. You see that? You have to drop. It's like you meet Christ at a different place than you were over here. It's an identification, experiential realization of participation in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating. And once it truly becomes the work of God, the Holy Spirit helps us work this out. It's called, Frank calls it the dynamics of deliverance. Okay, this is not ideal. This is not what it's supposed to be, but it was mine. This is what my experience was. Okay, now, before I go into the pattern too, you see, Romans 7 is all about pointing out sin, stirring up sin, and strengthening sin to help us understand you can't deal with sin yourself. You have to have the Holy Spirit in. And so, 
once the Holy Spirit is there, we have Romans 8 where we have the illustration of a transformed mind, delighting in godliness, energized to do right, to interpret the scriptures, not carnally, but according to what the Spirit of God teaches, exalting Christ in every way, which of course engenders joy in the journey. Okay, so that's, that's Romans 8 is the normal experience. Well, that's not all. Some people, uh, Frank says, experience it with pattern two. We have a conviction of sin, but when they meet Christ, not only are they regenerated, but they find their total commitment there to it at the same time. But they still have to experience Romans 7 sometimes, where they can't do it on their own. And so there's some kind of struggle. For some people, the struggle is longer than other people. But eventually, you call to the same thing. Eventually, we have to drop into the arms of Christ, and the supernatural takes over, and we have the dynamics of deliverance worked out. Okay? Some of you might have had that experience. Now, the only person I know, some of this stuff is so personal, we probably don't even know what each other's stories was. I only know of one person who basically has this. His name is Aaron Shank. Have any of you read his story, uh, Sound Doctrine book? Do you have it? Okay, so from what I would understand, Aaron, when he was convicted of sin, he met Christ and total commitment and I had a very minimal experience with Romans 7. It just, he went down here like this, and the dynamics of deliverance worked out from there. He told me, he says, I never wandered. After I met Christ, he never took a byway. It was always this. And brothers and sisters, I think this is what God expects as supposed to be normal. And I don't know why we don't have more of that. I have a suspicion that some of this other stuff happens because of some Reformed theology that we get, involved, get influenced by. Now, I'm going to ask a, a personal question. I've already revealed myself I've, as pattern one was my story. Do, do I have any company here? Did any of you identify yourselves with this? You, some, okay, I have some company. I'm not surprised. Can you, any of you identify with pattern two? That was your story. Some of you? Good. Now, is there anybody here that could say, that testify that number three was theirs? Do I see your hand up? Okay, so Verlin, you're the second person. Interesting. I wouldn't mind talking with you some more. Okay. All right, we'll just leave that. Verlin, would you, uh, since we're thinking about this, you've probably thought about some of these things. Do you have anything to say as to why we don't have more pattern three as common experiences? Do you have any comment on that? Okay, we'll talk later then. Okay. Okay, so... I would like to talk about this further now in a new dimension. So I'm going to shut this thing uh, off. And I'm going to turn this on.
Well, we'll just go like this. And that's not going to do it. So I guess we'll just pull the flower. No, that's not going to do it. I have to take it up there, I guess. Okay, so what I'm going to share with you next now has both a dimension personally, but also has to do with a group dimension, but probably most of us are thinking in terms of our personal. Okay, so Jesus taught us, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Okay, so what he meant by that is a teaching on the power of powerlessness. Now, what is that? Okay, so let's think about that. <clears throat> Human beings do not like to let God do things. Human beings like to solve their own problems. They like to create boxes, and they like to have everything figured out, everything strategized, planned, organized, executed with the way humans do things. That's just normal. But when that happens on a spiritual level, God restrains himself. Basically, God says, okay, you got it all figured out, go for it. He just stands back here and lets us do our thing for as long as we insist on it. And that's part of what Romans 7 is all about. Trying to save ourselves, do it ourselves. Just do it ourselves. He knows it's not going to work. Even on a group level, when we try to do everything properly, it's not going to work. God knows it. He stands back. He's such a gentleman. He will not force anything. He just stands back and waits till we discover the truth. The truth is, when we get rid of this box and we become humanly powerless, God goes to work. This is what I was showing you whenever we drop into the arms of Christ, then God goes to work. And he does things that are difficult for us to imagine otherwise. Okay, so whenever we talk about surrender to Christ, we're talking about Galassenheit. And whenever we do that, this Galassenheit are surrender to Christ engenders resurrection in living. That's where the power gets put to work in special, special ways. Now let's think about this Galassenheit a little bit more. Um, a historian said among my people, old Mennonites, we had lost this by 1930. And I have to tell you, growing up, I never heard of this word. I only discovered this word about 15 years ago. But it's very central in Anabaptist theology and teaching in Europe. And so when I moved to Indiana, I thought I noticed a little about this. I noticed that the Amish people had some of this. So I asked an Amishman one time, I said, uh, what do you understand about Galassenheit? He says, well, I've heard of it. He said, I can't really explain it. It has something to do with Jesus on the cross. Oh, yeah, it does. But 
even though he couldn't explain it, I could see some of it. And I'm here to tell you, I will never forget this as long as I live. I had some of this show up in my classroom. I saw this day by day in my classroom with an Amish girl. I'm not going to tell you her name. I'll just leave that. But what is this? Well, Galassanhei has no English translation. It takes 17 or 18 words to even describe it. And so here is a collection of those words. It's yieldedness, and that's how it's often translated in English, as yieldedness. But it's not just yieldedness. It's yieldedness along with humility and calmness along with that, plus composure, plus meekness, and aplomb, and tranquility, along with imperturbability, and serenity, and poise, and sedateness, and letting go. And if I had to do this over again, I'd put another word right in here called relaxation. It's the opposite of self-assertion. It's a gentle spirit. It's submitting to God's will as it includes brokenness. It esteems others above self. It's the union and agreement of the inner experience without response. But it's caught, not taught. I could talk to you all evening, and I can't teach you Galassenheit. It's something that the Spirit of God teaches on a spiritual level. But on a natural level, I saw with my own eyes a magazine that it was a double page for advertising a German BMW. And right across the top of both pages, Galassenheit. That word is still used in Germany today. The whole point of the advertisement was, if you have a BMW, you can just be in the car. And the car will do all this for you. It's a powerful advertisement. That's on a natural level. We're talking about a spiritual level. Now, to the world, this thing of Galatians is a weakness. But for Christ, this is the power of powerlessness. This is strength. It's just one of the upside-down values inherent in the kingdom of God. And we have some other of these that we're more familiar with. Okay, on a practical level, the opposite of Galassenheit is all about self-centeredness. You see, in our natural self, it's all about how we can raise ourselves. Everything's about me coming into me, how I can feed my flesh and my lusts and my desires to raise myself in some way. Well, Galassenheit is the opposite. It comes in and teaches me how to serve. I am here to serve. My, the gifts that I have are not for me, they're for you. And Tony, since you're here, I'm going to pick on you again. If you're an artist, your artistic ability is not for you. Your artistic ability is for everybody. Now, you probably are more of an artist with music. 
Is that true? Yeah, you enjoy singing. But that singing is for other people, not yourself. All the gifts, every one of the gifts we might have are not for ourselves. If we bring them into ourselves, that's a way of raising ourselves up. But the gifts we have are to be for others, okay? And the, we serve our families with our gifts, whatever. We serve our communities with our gifts. Oh, I have a question. I drive down the road on 30, and I see this cam board out here. I, I notice there's a message one way, there's a message the other way. Do you people sponsor that? You build it. And Cam puts the message up there. You, you put the message up there. Tell me the story. They don't allow private uh, billboards anymore with their number. And so that was our billboards. And we were doing that. They wanted us to have just a local number. So we basically used their image with our information. Well, I, I take my hat off to you folks. You are serving your community. I have no idea what it costs you to put that sign up there. But I just love it. It's like that's part of your being a colony of heaven in this area. Whenever we drive along the road, my wife and I had to point out we, we see cam signs along the way. Well, there we saw another cam sign. Turns out it's not a cam sign, it's your sign. It's wonderful. You're serving your community. Now, this one gets closer home. Glossenheit is the nemesis of argumentation. Now, nemesis means the opposite. It's, it's not that at all. I, I suppose by now you folks, you folks know that nobody ever wins an argument. Not all disputation is useful and good. How often the disputants themselves are persons without the spirit and faith, filled with carnal wisdom drawn from the scriptures, but not instructed by God. What's to be expected from such disputants? How often is unholy fire brought into the sanctuary of the Lord? That is, an unholy intent directed not to God's glory but to man's. They call forth his curse, and nothing is achieved by such disputing. An opponent is so annoyed by this that although he may not be able to answer, the manner of proceeding against him the carnal emotions, the insults, and the like hinder the hoped-for conversion. Can you get that? If you understand Galatians, that's, that's perfect. That's just right. That's just the way it is. But being a human being, at least... At least me, I struggle with that sometimes. It's like, if somebody's saying something wrong, sometimes you need to refute it in, in a proper way, but to argue is just out. Apostle Paul debated. Jesus had some strong words to say. But I don't think either Apostle Paul or Jesus argued. They stated their case. And I think that's the way we need to do it, too. And then just let it rest. It's called the power of powerlessness. Here's another way of looking at this. The kingdoms of this world are all about self-actualization. And they get this through wealth, through connection, through education. And different people in the world 
with their various amounts of wealth, connection, education, raise themselves up to various levels. And the world honors that. The higher you go, the more you're honored. The top position in the country is called the President of the United States. And that's why people seek that. It's the highest, most powerful office in the whole wide world. Okay, that's the opposite of Galassianite. In the kingdom of Christ, with Galassianite, Christ reigns where self is surrendered. Where we have brotherhood, where we are equal with one another. Each have our gifts, each have our responsibilities that we serve in Galassianite. If we don't, here's what happens. This is an illustration of Glossenheit failure. Suppose this is me, and I insist on some kind of self-actualization. Kind of self it's like a cancerous tumor. It grows and grows and grows until it interferes with others in the brotherhood. It spoils the brothers. Sometime, it has to be cut out. And it takes the wisdom of God to know how to deal with that. But Galassianite failure is a malignant cancer. All right, back to Frank Reed. <clears throat> he wrote this on July 25, 2015. So it's almost six years old. But uh, he says it so well. He says a common concept in Anabaptist history is Galassianite. This word is typically translated in English as yieldedness. Its actual definition is far more involved. So what are some elements of Galassianite as evidence in the Christian life? He says it's characterized by total peace with relationship with God. It's total submission to God and His Holy Spirit. It's a heart that's content with life. It's an unoffendable spirit. It's following example of Christ, peace and resignation and suffering, total reliance on the Holy Spirit, total trust in the Scripture, absolute confidence in God's control of all things, absolute confidence in trial and in death. Let me pause here to say, one of the reasons that it disappeared from my, my people back in the early 1900s, is because it began to be abused. If I was the leader, and Tony, you were irking me, I could tell you to be in Galassianheit. You know, we believe in Galassianheit. Well, get busy. Well, is that Galassianheit? Am I in Galassianheit if I'm pushing you? No. It's so easily abused. It's so tender, so fragile that because it was abused, then it was just dropped out of the story. And that's so sad. But it's everything but fearless. I'm sorry, it's everything but fearful. It's actually fearless when confronted and falsely accused. You know, it's, here's the power of powerlessness. If I am falsely accused, I can be absolutely fearless. Just look the person who's accusing me straight in the eye. Don't worry about it a bit. Because I realize this is not my issue, this is God's issue. See, 
some people think the world looks at Galassianite and says, that is a perfect set of weakness. But it's not. Because all it does is takes me out of the picture and presents God there. And so it actually becomes a power. It's unmovable when standing for the truth of God. It's not doubting the truth of God. It's not distracted by temptation and sin. It believes that truth is immortal, while earthly life is mortal. It's having godly discernment of spirits. It's having a biblical perspective on all issues. I'd like to comment on that one. <clears throat> when God speaks, I'm in Galassian height. I agree with God immediately. I didn't realize what he was saying there. Well, if God says it, well, of course. I don't argue at all. This is what I mean by it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Tony says. It doesn't matter what any of us say. If God says it, it's done. That's it. Because we're in Galassian height time. Having a heart for God. Believing and living and knowing that all is well with your soul. Trusting in, in the sufficiency of God. Faith that does not doubt. It's a love of God that meets people where they are. It's life of living a life of following Jesus Christ. Not seeking things that are not godly. It's not tempted by worldly lust. Well, yeah, it's tempted, but it's like, it's not really, don't even consider yielding. It's not retaliatory. Okay, then he says, Galatians Haiti is not submission to religious authority that is not godly. And that's where this abuse thing came in. Tony, if I said that to you, and you're in Galassian height, what would you do to me? Do you have to do anything? No, you don't have to do a thing. But you, what, what you really need to do is know that man is out of his place. That's all you have to understand, because God takes over from there. That's not very normal. That's not very natural. If I'm out of my place, your natural tendency is to set me in place, right? Are you that natural? No, we can identify with that. But it's not. Submission, Galatia is not going to just simply yield to any kind of pressure, especially if it's ungodly pressure. Galatia is not allowing people to continue in sin without scriptural confrontation. And that's where leaders need to sometimes uh, be in Galassian height. Uh, the congregation here, this little colony of heaven, are trusting you leaders. If there is sin, somebody has to take the lead in confrontation in Galassian height. And that's tough. It's tough to do that. But it's less tough the more we're in Galassian height. Galassian height is not an excuse for one's behavior. But it is. Galassian height is the contentment and confidence. Perfect persons living in spiritual Galassian height have a peace of heart and quietness of spirit. The living God is living in them, and they are so fulfilled that they're not looking for something to fill up the voids because God has filled them. They're not attracted to by they're not attracted by sinful lust because they've died to self and to sin. Their life is on the altar for, of God for his use. Whatever God brings into their lives, they accept with gracious thankfulness. They focus on what's eternal, not what's temporal. 
That said, they are not persuaded by manipulation. I've had some students in school who are master manipulators. And that, that's, that's a weakness I face. It's like, when I feel myself manipulated, I need to allow the Holy Spirit to help me know how not to be manipulated. Understand what's going on, but to be responsive with Galassenheit to that. Spiritual discernment and wisdom fill their lives, and they try to, to try the spirits to see if they are gods or not. They're not threatened by loss of position or life. They will confront sin because sin is so destructive to the kingdom of God. They have clarity about what's good and what's not. He says, I recently had a discussion about Galassonite with some German friends. The German grandmother was holding her new baby granddaughter while listening to the conversation, so she said this. She says, this is Galassenheit. There was nothing in the whole world that she would rather be doing than sitting peacefully holding her new, beautiful, sleeping little granddaughter. Now think about that. The baby was in Galassenheit. The grandmother was also in Galassenheit. It's a perfect picture of what Galassenheit is. For Christians experiencing Galassenheit, that is the perfect picture. There is nothing we would rather be doing than serving our Lord in the capacity in which he's called us and gifted us. Whatever the cost, that's what we'll do, and we'll do it with joy. Galassenheit is the absolute peace of heart experienced by a Christian living for God. You're not searching, you're not seeking, you're not anxious. In life and death, you're at peace. In stress and trouble, you're at peace. Take no thought for the morrow is the watchword of Galassenheit. Galassenheit took the martyrs to death singing and preaching. This is what I meant. This is so compelling. When you see somebody who is living and working in Galassenheit, you realize the supernatural power of God is present there. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. May that peace and contentment of heart be your portion. May that peace carry you through these difficult days. May you experience the fullness of heart found only in serving the living God. May you not be distracted by the poison and politics around you. And so, some summary things here. <clears throat> The Anabaptist worldview consists of the B Trinity. It's believing in our minds and in our hearts the great truths. It's getting in touch with the reality of those great truths. But it's more than just believing. It's being transformed within. It's experiencing a new reality within. And that new reality within causes a different kind of behaving. Transformed without. Practicing a new reality in daily life. The B Trinity, believing, being, behaving. Okay, so in a few minutes that I have left, I would like to lead you 
to another way of thinking about this. I hope you can see all this well enough. Yeah, you can see that. When we have Christ within our hearts, the first principle of the Anabaptist vision is Jesus Christ through the Holy Scriptures is the ultimate authority. Okay, so you notice that Jesus Christ is here, but there's also principles here. Okay, so these principles, along with Christ, give us guidance, wisdom, security, and power in all of life. And so the issues of life, from family to money to possession to work to pleasure to friends, enemies, church, self, spouse, all find direction through Christ. And we have security and guidance and wisdom and power because we are thinking the way he thinks and doing things the way he does. Okay. This is normal Christian experience. This is stage four living. Okay. Now, what happens when Jesus Christ comes out of the picture? And I, I have to tell you, in Anabaptist history, when we went, at least my people, went into the uh, Dark Ages, somehow Jesus Christ got awfully dim. And we were back to basically principles. We never really thoroughly departed from all the principles. And so our lives and our history remain rather stable because we abided by some of those basic principles, even though Christ was largely or too largely absent. I'm not judge. There must have been more than I could see or God would not have done what he did with us. But when Christ actually goes out of a person's life, the life can go on and be stable as long as his principles are still there. And even people who are not Christians, if they operate according to principles that God teaches, their lives can be rather stable. But the next step down is what happens when the principles go. We have no longer Christ. We no longer have principles. This is tradition. We have practice. Now, when you get to this level, some things got to be shaky. As long as the tradition is still present, we have a lot of security and guidance and power and wisdom still working to manage all life principles. It's just the way it's done, but it, the way it's done was based on those principles. Okay, the last stage in this whole thing is this. When you no longer have tradition anymore, there's just an empty center, and vacuums do not exist in the real world. Something's going to fill up that center. For many people, what fills up that center is self moves out of here into here. Sometimes money moves out of here into here. For our people, 
One of our strengths and weaknesses is work. We tend to be workaholics. And work comes in and fills up this place. But this is a dangerous place to be. And we're basically in inviting idolatry into our lives, if this is where it is. Principles come from the way the world works. They're universal, they're timeless, they're unchanging laws, they have physical, emotional, and spiritual dimensions, but it's about reality. This is the way God built the world. Now, values are not that way. Values are maps of the territory. The better the description of reality, the more useful the map. Now, this is where we come in. This is what God sets up. The more we abide by these, the better we are. But sometimes we think we know better, and uh, we create false values. For example, even wicked people have false values called gang work or cheating or homosexuality. But those are here. There is no such things as false principles. They don't even exist. So what we need to be paying attention to is making sure our values line up with God's principles and also holding Jesus Christ as central. We worship him. He directs all of our lives. And lastly, you know, I don't know if I have... Uh, I'll save this last one for tomorrow. So I'll just stop right there. Maybe you have some questions or something you want to talk about before we close tonight. Yes. I'll respond to your question earlier, although maybe not with a very good answer. I don't feel like my experience was all that special. The way that you addressed it, I'm only one of two people you know. I, but what I would describe is that there were, there were elements of all three of the things that you said where I, as a young man, I met Christ on that level. And I would say that since then, it's been all uphill with dips, but you know, never a, a turning away, never a, a major questioning. There were definitely, I would have described it more as there were times when, when I was 14, when I was 18, 22, I can point to very distinct events where Christ was calling me to something greater and deeper. And so it wasn't like I had this experience and now I've all of a sudden in stage four, you know, at the peak no. of maturity. No. But it was, it was an experience where Christ kept drawing me to himself. And it was, uh, I, I wouldn't want to paint an over-rosy picture. I mean, it continued on up into my 30s and 40s and 50s where the Lord continues to shape me. But that's the dynamics of deliverance. See, you, yes. you have some of this, but there is not a time where you actually turned your back on Christ or what many people call uh, backsliding. And that's normal. That is the way it's supposed to be. I just wish it'd be more often. 
So why it's not more often, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I think there's elements of, of things that happen in our youth. We know, for some people, it's what you described. We want a, a ticket out of hell, and, and that's all we want. But when we get a picture of our undoneness before God and that we need Jesus, I think that did happen to me very early on in Bless my meeting Christ. Bless your heart. From now on, I will say there's two people that I know. <laughs> Anything else? All right, if not, you're a very attentive audience. Thank you for your attention.